Hi everybody, and welcome to The Dry Life, a podcast where we talk about the ins and outs of the alcohol-free lifestyle, sobriety, and everything in between. My name is Kayla Lyons, and I'm your host. Let's get started. Today's host is, uh, we call it a a 1HD uh, elder, and you may know him as the vulnerable disco, Vince Miller. Hey, Vince. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, So let's just jump right in. For anybody who may not be familiar with um, you and your page and your new blog, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. I'm Vince. Uh, I was a vulnerable disco and I just launched my blog uh, um, in January of 21. Um, I am a experienced gay man living in Kansas City, Missouri with my uh, boyfriend and my beautiful cat named Stevie Ree. Um, I am a writer and a huge sobriety advocate, um, especially on social media and in real life. Um, And through that, I'm also a marathon runner and um, a really enthusiastic uh, LaCroix model that I got featured one time (laughs) on the website. And so I'll hold that for the rest of my life. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. I love LaCroix. Um, So Vince, why don't you give us a little bit of background about how, you know, how you decided not only to, you know, become a sobriety advocate, but how you even like, why'd you get sober? Okay. So this is a solid question, a question that I never feel like I can answer in the best way only because it's really hard for me that I did not, I didn't realize this until probably this last year. Um, I just celebrated my second year of being alcohol free on January 1st. And, um, and it was a really, really exciting time. And a lot of people, I started getting messages from people asking, you know, what advice I'd have, or, you know, what is it that, when did I realize that something was a problem? And to be honest, I, I never even had a moment with alcohol that was enjoyable and which is crazy to think about now because I was drinking for close to 10 years. Um, I started drinking when I was, I just graduated high school and I went to a new year's Eve party and I was always around alcohol with family functions and with friends. And I always lied about going to house parties, even though I never did any drugs or drink anything. And I just being there, my family is paranoid. Um, yeah. But I tried alcohol for the first time when I was 18, and it was the most magical experience. I feel like I was floating. I felt like this whole new world opened up, and my mind was free of any insecurity and inhibition. And immediately following that night, I wanted to drink every night. I wanted to drink every weekend. I wanted to go out dancing. And within a month, I had one of the biggest meltdowns ever. Um, I got wasted and I pretty much put everyone on blast, all of my friends. <laughs> and um, they called it the, they call it the, the carnival events, which is when somebody said something and maybe insecure. And I, and, and that became like my habit is I would drink and all of my bitter feelings, insecurity, a lot of problems that I had would just come unleashed. And yeah. And so that be, I, so going forward, like I thought, oh, you know, I feel bad that I did that, but then it just became the cycle. And then I got, you know, a few years older and I learned to harness it and I learned to only let it out in certain times, but that became, you know, once I harnessed it, quote unquote, I was like, okay, yeah, well, I, I don't have a problem for sure because I'm not being that crazy bitch that I used to be. And I actually just learned to suppress everything. And then I started to drink every weekend. Then it turned into every night. I was making really bad decisions. And um, and when I turned, I just turned 25. It was in 2016. I turned 25 the night of the election. And um, <laughs> the night Trump won. And being a gay man, I was terrified. I was also going through a separation with my husband. And I was sleeping on our living room floor. And I, that is when the alcohol really took the worst possible turn. Um, We were going to separation. The world around me was changing with politics and everything going on. And 
I started to make really bad decisions in a new city that I was living in. And two months later, I was held at gunpoint. Um, oh my God. Yeah. I was walking home from the bars. I was completely blacked out and I, and that became a habit. I would walk home completely wasted and, um, and four guys jumped me with, they all had guns and they stole my car. They totaled it. And so I was out of money essentially, um, because with the car, with moving into my new place and refurnishing it after our separation. And we had just had a wedding. I mean, I had no money at that point. And so I had to move back home with family. And I really thought, okay, this is, this is okay. Like I'll be okay. So I moved back home to the small town of Mansfield, Missouri, a town of 1200 people. I was in hell. I went from, I went from like living in the middle of Metro KC, Kansas city to being back in my old childhood bedroom. And so the alcohol got even worse. I mean, to the point that I was drinking a six pack of IPA and I on top of a bottle of wine. And I was just, it was, I mean, it was just reaching my lowest level. Well, I finally got my own place. Um, in, a, in Springfield, Missouri, which is a little bit bigger. And I continued my drinking. But instead of going out, I didn't have any friends because um, they all moved away. I ended up uh, I ended up just drinking at home every night. And people had no idea how severe the drinking was getting. It was significantly worse than anything I'd ever gone through. And, uh, and I woke up one day after a drunken night after a night of just, I think I probably sent some messages. I might've, you know, there had been weeks of me, I would, you know, meet up with people. I would do really, really bad things that I would never do sober. And I woke up one day and I don't know what popped into my head, but I literally woke up and this thought came to my head and it was, no one's coming to save me. Like no one is, I'm literally going to drink myself to sleep. And just to the point where I may not wake up ever again and no one's coming to save me. And it was a pretty, pretty real thought. I thought, and I, and I think also I'd been showing signs of, um, of kind of, you know, signs that my parents would show because they both were, had some issues with addiction. And I realized I was becoming them and I was becoming part of that cycle, the cycle that I thought I'd never become. And so, um, so yeah, in January of 2000, uh, 18. So I'd gone a whole year of getting wasted. And um, in January 2018, I decided I was going to uh, stop drinking. And I was going to switch my my alcohol with running shoes. And, um, and I thought that was going to be it. I thought I am a changed man. I feel amazing. I'm going to tell everyone on social media. And, and I quickly, <laughs> quickly within the first month was like, everyone, I'm done drinking. I feel amazing. This is awesome. And I crashed. It was one of those things that I got too comfortable. I quickly forgot the problems that I had with alcohol and I started drinking again. Um, and so it was like a through cycle. And so I ended up getting, um, so it was Jane. So I went through another year of kind of trying to be a moderate drinker. And of course, when you stop drinking, you realize how good you are on top of your life than when you are drinking and so yeah yeah. so then january 1st of 19 is my actual um what i call my sober birthday and so that yeah i've not had a drink since then Mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome well i mean that's crazy (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean i think i a lot of people who get sober when i've asked that question you know because obviously you know like you said that's what people want to know like how did you know that it was done because it's not always the worst moment right like I I look at your story I look at my story and it's like there were much worse times Mm -hmm. or you know much more traumatic Mm -hmm. events that in you know in uh in reality should have made me stop but didn't and then when I did decide to stop, it I was a bad night, but it wasn't the worst. Um, and I think about how how that works, and the best way I can explain it is what I read in the Biology of Desire, which is basically that every individual has a threshold for pain, for uh, disgust, for negativity, um, 
And so for me, it was like, that was the moment that I'd finally reached like the boiling point. And so everyone's boiling point is different, but it was just this accumulation of so many negative experiences with alcohol. And I, I was like you, like I hit the ground running from when I started drinking. There was no like slow progression of, oh, okay, I'm, I'm a normal drinker. And then it got worse. Like it, I started off right. at the bottom. <laughs> and right. so what I, what I try and tell people, I think uh, is you'll just know, like it sounds very foo-foo spiritual, but to me, it was just the moment that I was like, all right, like this is really over. Like uh, it, to your point, I'm, I'm either going to keep doing this and die or I have to do something differently. And I, I know that this is the problem and it has to go. And so you make that decision and it's like, a, you know, it's like a breakup. It's like a divorce and it's extremely hard. But like many other hard decisions you have to make in your life, like, you know, the answer. You are just avoiding it for a period of, you know, maybe years, months, however long. Um, but once you finally do, there's such a sense of relief like, oh, this is going to be hard, but it's finally, it's right. over. And I think that was, I was just talking to a friend about this, who he, he's in the beginnings, he's probably, I think he just hit his 100th day. And I told him that I don't know if I'd be so comfortable in my alcohol-free journey had I not spent that year, my first year of when I decided to stop drinking, if I had not spent it entertaining every possible option like in my I I think had I you know I I really tried to allow myself to give different avenues to be like well maybe if you only drink on weekends it'll be different or maybe you can learn to moderate and by entertaining it and trying different avenues I realized how miserable I truly truly was with it and that was kind of that whole I think everyone thinks that you're just one you know you're done and you wake up one day things are different you're on top of the world it's like no some of it i mean those are kind of the stories you don't really hear about often are the people who say you know who who talk about kind of the trying like the trying it out and testing things of what worked and didn't work and i think that that's kind of that gray area that i think um that you don't really hear about too often yeah i, I think now that you say something i really and <laughs> i i mean i've known a lot of other addicts and alcoholics uh, because like you, my journey, it started in like 2000. Uh, I mean, it's like those alcohol classes in high school. Cause I was getting in trouble. Um, so my, uh, I guess, you know, education and outpatient treatments and things started really young, probably 16 or 17. Um, and then I went to rehab in 2015 and, just like you, it took me about it. It took me around a year, actually, probably a year almost um, directly after leaving rehab to actually make the decision to stop. Like I knew that it was going to eventually have to stop, but like you, like I needed to exhaust all options. Like I'm just the kind of person that like, I'm going to put, I'm going to, every possible option has to be done if I'm going to leave this and I do it with relationships mm -hmm. too which is like I think some codependency um you know but I want to make sure that I've done everything possible before I walk away and so like you I had kind of that year after I had left treatment where I think I stayed sober for a couple of months and then it never got as bad as it was before rehab, but it was just like you said, miserable. Like the, the seed had been planted. I knew that there were other people out there that were like me, who got me, who drank like I did and who weren't drinking. And once I knew that and I, and I had learned something about the alcohol free and like sobriety community, I couldn't unlearn it. And so I think in the back of my mind for that whole year, it just, you know, on those Sundays that I'm waking up, I'm so hungover and I was back and doing drugs and coming down and my whole, you know, my whole Sunday is just me being sick and having a migraine and barely being able to keep down like Pedialyte or Gatorade. And those are the days that I sat there thinking like, I wonder what, you know, so-and-so from rehab is doing, or I wonder what, you know, 
what it would have been like if I had just spent this weekend doing something else, like not this. And so a whole year of really doing what I wanted to do, which was party and continue to be young. You know, I'm, I think I was like 23 or 24. And then finally it just, I think similar to what you said, I, I was like, this is not a sustainable lifestyle for me. I'm living in this town. I had moved back like to Bakersfield, mm. California, which is like meth central, um, living with family, small town, uh, dating another addict, um, and really just, I was like, I know I'm capable of so much more than this, just like living, working like random waitressing jobs and basically like surviving, living for the weekend. And I was like, how did I go from going to like a top public university to like right. this, <laughs> Like I'm so, I can do so much more with my life, and but that's not going to work out if I keep drinking. Like I, it was a trade off for me. I was like, there's, there's a life that I want that I know I can have, but alcohol is just not going to work. I tried everything to put alcohol in this picture and it just right. went off. It. Yeah. I, gosh, it's funny. Wow. We have a parallel. We, my, I'm from a very small town as well that, um, it's, yeah. I, I mean, the last thing they're probably, it's wild to me because the meth, it's, it's, it's horrible. Everyone I know, like there's so many people and my, you know, my mom, Oh my God. Yeah. She, uh, she was a meth addict and, and it was really bad. And that's what, that was my first um, exposure to addiction was my mom. When I was 11 years old, my mom telling us that she had tried mm. meth and she had a prescription pill problem. And so, when you're around it, you almost, cause you view that and you're like, well, I'm never going to become that. I see what that is. I don't want to be that I'm above that. And yeah. so we went to therapy. They made us go to therapy for the divorce. And my parents, my therapist is like, you actually have substance abuse um, and addiction on both sides. So you kids need to be really careful um, with how you, with what you get involved in, because you can, you can become an addict very easily. And I remember being like 11 and being like, no, that's not me. I see what it's done to my parents. I'm good. Thanks. And I was like the top, I was like the president of SAD, which was students against destructive decisions. I was judging all my friends were drinking. I was like a goody two shoes asshole in high school. And I just hated the whole town because I was gay and they hated me. So it was just like this weird relationship. Uh, but <laughs> So we had gone through therapy and I said, that's definitely not going to be me. I'm above this. I see what this can do to my life. I'm good. And so I became the, like, I was the president of like, students against destructive decisions in high school. I was the, um, I was like the asshole in high school that would judge everyone for drinking and going out <laughs> and doing stuff. Yeah. And, and being, and of course, also, I was just a very, defensive person growing up because I was gay in a very small town that I just didn't want any part like of the town because I thought you guys are all closed-minded you're all town little hicks I don't want anything yeah. to do with this so I that's where my very dry sense of humor where my very um defensive personality came from at a very very young age um which thankfully I found theater in another town so I would travel into theater and I'd come back to a small town and judge everyone and it's just crazy it. because it's crazy because it's all there. They teach you in high school, like, don't do this. It's bad. And it's how it, it's still just crazy because you then become an adult and like all that's just lost on you. Oh, like cool. you just don't um, understand it because I don't think that they're really, I, I think it's hard because I don't know how you teach kids about it. I think it's sadly one of those things that, I think we need to re-examine how we look at it as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I think it's part of it is emotional intelligence and how we just don't teach that at all. Like we teach, you know, kindergartners, their ABCs and how to put blocks and shit, but we don't teach them how to be nice to each other or how to recognize, Oh, you know, Eduardo is crying. Why don't you go comfort him or ask him what's wrong or, you know, and the one good thing, is that I was reading recently that some of the like Ivy League schools are starting these programs on campus for their child development classes. So they're starting to integrate these emotional intelligence courses for these young kids. And it will 
what the, the hope is that it really helps teach, you know, empathy, understanding, compassion, which I think sometimes is part of the kind of disillusion. Oh, that could never be me. Oh, I'm better than this kind of because I'm I was similar to you. Before, even though I started drinking in high school at like 16 before that, I was the complete opposite like you. I was like SGA, super snob. Like, oh my God, that's, I won't do that. I won't do anything. I'm like so against everything. And even in my addiction, I was like that. I was like, I will only do my drugs that I prescribed, even though I'm like doctor shopping and like being shady as fuck. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll drink, but like, ew, like you're doing cocaine, like you're fucking lame. And so (laughs) it was just so bizarre how my mind like validated my use. Or like you said, you know, I was dating somebody who was, using meth and it allowed me to say oh well I'm not that bad like I'm not a real addict because I'm not like thing or buying drugs off the street when that is just such a fallacy like mm-hmm. so I, I think sometimes I mean I I did not grow up in a home with parents both my parents are you know normies they don't they don't have any um addiction or substance abuse problems but I have other very close um family that has and it's in my grandparents and um so I I always knew to be careful but I think I always just surrounded myself with people who drank like I did or used drugs and stuff to kind of camouflage Um, and validate what I was doing because it's easy to say, oh, you know, I don't really have a problem. It's not that bad when everybody around you is doing the same thing or you're dating somebody who is doing something or worse, you know, um, rather than putting yourself in uh, a group of people who, you know, drink quote unquote normally, if that really, you know, exists in this era, at least in our (laughs) society. Um, where you'd be like, oh, okay, like every not everybody at the table is having their fourth drink at dinner. And how is Karen like sipping on one drink this entire time? And like we leave and she didn't even finish it. Like, what the fuck? Um, right. Yeah, they were weak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just, there's so many validations that I just, I, I mean, if I could, I feel like if we can make a list of like all the things I told myself to validate the way I drank. And how so so much so much of it was like ego and judgment, and I mean a lot of it was obviously like deflection and and things. But I know for me personally, like I I let it go on so long because, like you said, I kind of told myself like I'm stronger than like what I perceived an addict or an alcoholic to be. Like that's not me. I don't have a problem, you know. And then you learn and you realize it's like, well, these are addictive substances to anybody, regardless of whether you have a predisposition or not. And if you're using them in a certain way, behaviorally, you are pretty much bound to become a habitual drinker or someone who becomes dependent emotionally or physically on it. And so when I started to learn more about that, I think it made me feel a little bit better and think, you know, I'm not this like, dysfunctioned, um, you know, born this way, doomed to forever be this person rather, um, you know, I'm a victim of circumstance and genetic together, but then I'm also, you know, a conscious adult who makes conscious decisions. And, you know, I, I got myself into a lot of these situations and now it's my obligation to myself to, uh, make better decisions. So I don't, you know, get in these situations like you, I can't, I can't think of, I can't even name the amount of times that I was in actually dangerous, like actual danger and just did not even think twice. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I think about all the times I went home with someone. I think about all the time I made out with someone in a random bathroom. Like I, I think about those things and I'm like, me now I wouldn't I could never oh, no. and, like, <laughs> and I don't mean that and I don't mean that in capacity 
to to shame someone who does that sober for you if that's the thing for you that is great but for me i just can't that was just not what that was for me what i saw that as at that time was i was really acting out on mm-hmm. on on trauma and i that was just when i realized when i when i really got down to the point when i got into therapy that you know the reason just to see all the things I was running from, like what it was that I was avoiding and not actually ever acknowledging. I had close to 15 years of trauma that I did not ever acknowledge. Wow. I think a lot of people do and they don't realize it because the word trauma is so intense. Like when you, I think when you say the word trauma to somebody who hasn't done trauma work, they think like, Oh, car accident. Oh, PTSD from being in the military, you know, sexual abuse, which those are all traumas, obviously, but it's kind of that ACE system that um, is becoming more popular now in, um, in the psychology realm where every child has basically this system where um, they're given points based on uh, the trauma they experience and the more ACE points you have, obviously, the higher at risk you are for, uh, you know, dangerous behaviors, substance abuse, violence, et cetera. Um, and those ACE points can be uh, like things that people don't think about or it's it's normal to them because they grow up in it. But like like, I guess for me, my example would be. Like I had a, a, I had like an emotionally incestual relationship with a family member and it was, it wasn't until I was older that I, that I realized there was manipulation and um, obviously it was wrong and very just now uh, <laughs> like just very toxic and obviously um, fuck, fucked up. Um, but at the time it, it seemed, you don't know, you don't know what's traumatic you don't know what's wrong or what's different until you start to get older and you're talking to friends or you're realizing things like, Oh, this isn't normal. Like not everybody has, like you said, not everybody's parents have addiction issues or not everybody's, you know, this person is talking to them and are touching them in that, in that way. And it, and you start to realize, and then that shame I think is for me was a huge part of it. Like, I had a lot of anxiety and I did have PTSD that I didn't even understand. But then on top of that, there's so much shame from my traumas. And then obviously the additives of the behaviors that I kept doing when I was drinking that I felt like I was like suffocated under the shame. And there was no way that I could ever escape it or get on top of it. And like when I wasn't drinking or doing drugs, like the weight was too much. And I feel like a lot of people can relate to that and just, you, you feel like you're stuck. Well, it's like the, I, I was trying to tell my, when I really opened up to my boyfriend, my now boyfriend, I, I explained to him as my life was the twister that just kept on. It was like the storm that just kept rolling into the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Because it was like the trauma that I had experienced was, you know, my parents divorced, which was like a horrific divorce where, you know, my, I saw my mom try to commit suicide. I watched my mom in physical altercations. Um, Mm. There were several things throughout that summer and they're separate and I witnessed. And then they put me into theater to try to help. And next thing you know, I get into this really unhealthy relationship with a 36 year old instructor who then molested me for a year and a half. Um, I then decided to tell the theater about it. The theater sort of handled it, but for the most part, a lot of them just kind of blamed me for it because then I I ended up in a codependent relationship with an 18 year old who had also been molested by the same guy before, Mm -hmm. before me. And then he turned out to be an alcoholic and someone that was emotionally abusive, um, as well. And then right when him and I broke up, started to drink. 
so then it so all those years past of all that trauma and all those really horrific things that I never dealt with I never worked through and through all that I was also living a double life because I was in this one town being able to be gay being out and open with all of them and then I was back in my hometown going and going to high school to where I had to still be straight and ignore everything um so yeah it was just built up built up trauma and then that turned into dealing with it through alcohol. Yeah, I mean, so this is something that I did want to talk with you about. And, um, you know, I think it's important, especially in today's current, you know, state. Um, you know, obviously NBC reached out to us to talk about alcohol abuse in the LGBTQIA community and how it's much more prevalent than just, you know, blanket everyday American society. And so I know we talked about it. I talked to um, the hosts of our, of the chapter and I did a lot of research and it really blew my mind how prevalent substance abuse is in your community and I just, I, I mean, why do you think, I mean, everybody obviously has their opinions, but why do you think that is in your experience? I, I mean, I think it goes back before my birth. It goes back, it yeah. goes back <laughs> generations of, I mean, obviously generations of how our community has been viewed Um, And how our community was able to get together for years. I mean, you think of Stonewall, you think of all these places where they, they, the safe havens were these bars and clubs, Studio 54, where there was like an insane amount of alcohol and cocaine just flying through the place. But Studio 54 was like the safest place for, for our community to get together. So that actually never, that whole mindset of having these safe havens, that's why during the pandemic, saving these bars, they're all closing down. And it's important to actually save them, even if it's surrounded by alcohol, because they are the safest places for our community. And, and so you put it that, you know, you have obviously the history of the gay community and its addiction, but then you have politics come into it. And yes, we have gay marriage. And yes, there are certain rights to us that, are, that we're finally getting. We're finally becoming equal to everyone. The, the fear and the judgment to our community did not suddenly disappear. So we've constantly lived in this very weird state. And, um, and the Thousand Years Dry is not obviously a, um, is not a political place. But as a, as a gay person, when you see someone that becomes a president, and he allows for, you know, homophobia, transphobia, all that to kind of, kind of, he gives permission to people to speak about it and to be very openly against it. Um, That takes a toll on our community and people have to deal with that. And we don't have this, a lot of people don't have support in the ways that they need it. A lot of them don't have families. They're kicked out because they came out. And so then the pandemic hits So now we're home alone. We don't have those safe places to go to, those communities. Um, So we're drinking at home. No one's there to support us. And meanwhile, you have everyone on the news talking about trans rights and people, bathroom Mm -hmm. bullshit going on. And so it all becomes the perfect storm for for the LGBTQIA community to completely just collapse on ourselves in that way because we're we don't have any sort of distraction we together and support each other so all we can do is watch the news and watch how all this is just unfolding continually um before our eyes i just i think if if you don't know who your real friends are before this election and before the last i mean year and a half you better fucking know now Um, oh absolutely it blew my mind and because I mean I grew up moving around a lot I was in like a military state department family so for me I was very lucky to have such um diversity in my life 
my like all the way up in I lived overseas until I was 15 till I moved back to the states so I you know I went to these private schools I had very small classes of like I think my like sixth grade class there was like 10 people um and I got to meet all these different kinds of people from different cultures from different backgrounds and it never occurred to me to think about anybody as being different like it just Obviously, color exists, race exists, gender exists. But I I think when you're a child and there's so many, you know, that like racism and homophobia are like taught. They're not innate. And so it blew my mind when I moved back to the States because and I'm, you know, I'm a cisgendered white woman. I'm straight. I'm pretty fucking bland white. Um, (laughs) Like (laughs) and and I just, you know, but I always I, I, when I moved back to the States, I moved to a very like rural area in, um, in the Midwest. And there was like KKK in the town still. And I witnessed like for the first time in my entire life, like racism and like you said, homophobia and just, it shook me to my core because I just had never experienced any of that. And I was like, I don't, I, I just couldn't understand it. And I still can't, I could not wrap my hat, head around. Like, I was like, e- like, everybody's the same. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, what it, I just, I literally could not, it was like speaking a foreign language to me. And then, you know, I make friends, but you know, I was like you, I knew that that was, that's not where I grew up. I, I made friends, but I always knew I was going to leave right after college or um, after high school. And I stay in touch with people, but it wasn't until the last really year and a half when I recognized like, oh my God, like just some of these people who I've been friends with for, for a long time, or I thought that I knew them and just seeing some of the things they post on social media or like when I'm open about my opinions on my personal page, I've had people unfollow me or, or say something nasty. And I'm like, I, you know, we went to homecoming together. Like, what are you talking about? Um, And not even (laughs) recognizing, you know, that over the last 10 years or so, these formations have happened because of the lack of education, because of living in certain areas and the ignorance that is just, just thriving and I can sit there and go I know these people these are good people these are not hateful vengeful people but the media and what's going on in the world is creating this disillusion in so many people who are either not educated or they're heavy into religion and it's just it makes me so sad to see so many people that I care about, including a lot of my family members. Like I grew up in a very conservative Catholic home um, where I just can't talk to some of my own family or I'm like this, these subjects are off limits. Like, because you will not, I will get, I literally made my mom get out of the car once (laughs) I was like, get out. (laughs) Like we went to watch that blonde bombshell movie. And um, she, she literally, she said something she's, you know, um, she's not QAnon, but she's Trump. Um, and I literally was like, get out of my car. <laughs> like it just, it, and I think for, for people who are, who are allies of the community, um, and especially for white people, like you need to be vigilant and, and open your ears and open your eyes to what's going on. Because like, have I ever experienced racism, uh, or homophobia? No, but I can like, I can do something about it. I can give a platform for it. I can try and support. And like you said, like whatever I can do to help try and make these safe spaces, I'm going to do it because it's like, once again, it goes back to the emotional IQ. Like I feel like I'm such an empath. Like I feel other people's feelings and it's so overwhelming. And so when I see something when I see somebody being hurt or being bullied or, you know, anything like, you know, me, like I'm, I'm like, Whoa, not fucking cool. Right. You know, not okay at all. And it just, 
like to me there is a healthy level of shame some people do need to be shamed like and how else how else are we gonna change the way people think yeah so yeah let's get into that because that's i think that's a good that's an interesting statement you made because i am to kind of to kind of the statement you know to kind of finish up my my thoughts on just racism and trump Mm -hmm. and all that other stuff that i because i grew up in such a small conservative town and being i i knew it when i was five years old i was gay i didn't know what gay was i don't like girls and why do i have a crush on all the lifeguards at pool (laughs) like that clearly was like that i that was just so there and I learned at a young age that something is not right here. Something the way that this is somehow my world that I'm in right now is not adding up because it sh- yeah. I, I can't ignore reality. And what I've learned is, and I think a lot of people have, I've been accused before of being too forgiving or I'm too, um, sometimes too, I kind of, they, I mean, it's just too forgiving, especially yeah. with the man who molested me that I view it as, I don't think anyone in this world wants to be racist or homophobic or like, I think if they knew if they had any indication of actual what pain that causes, they wouldn't, they, I mean, these people really think that they're doing the right thing. So oh, yeah, some I point agree. In their life, they really believe that what they were doing was the way they believe for, they have to be this way because there's something else that tells them that this is wrong. And one of the other thing is, is this higher power, whether it's religion um, or maybe their dad, when they were so young, told them that, you know, racism is a good thing. Who knows whatever it is. And they stay in those same environments and people and like my hometown, those people never left. I mean, my dad's lived on the same street his entire life. So I don't expect my dad to fully understand what's happening in the world he can't know there's like there's there are no there are not any black people in that town and there are no gay people i was like the one of five people and then i left so it's one of those things where i'm like i have to try to be not empathetic but i can understand where people can come into that so i do so i think this is interesting because i would love to get in this topic with you on shaming within the recovery community Oh, yes. Well, hmm. <laughs> I well, here's here's what I'm trying. I try and practice to your point, like radical empathy, which is I learned about that with I forget the name of the movie now. It was it was popular, I think, last year, or the year before. Um, it was the guy who went and did the the interviews and stuff with the KKK, a, a black man, and was just trying to basically understand you know, like, not on a compassionate level, but on a logical, like, what, what's going on here? Because like you said, I, I am not a religious person. Yes. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a religious person by any means. I'm not, I'm, I, I would go probably as far to say I'm atheist. Um, And so for me, it's just, like you said, I, I believe all of these kinds of things are learned behaviors. I don't mm-hmm. think people are innately evil and out to hurt other people. And people that seem that way are usually people who have been hurt and abused and traumatized themselves, like the worst people. And and all the people I've met in my life, too, who have really traumatized me and who other people are like, you know, why don't you wish they were dead or like, you know, had the opportunity. And it's like, you know what, I... I recognize that there's a human being underneath both of my abusers and that I know for a fact, one of them was also molested themselves. So Mm -hmm. it's this cycle that I don't want to continue. And by not forgiving or, or allowing radical empathy to exist within this realm, then I'm saying, Oh, this is a black and white issue, which is just absolutely not. Um, But as far as shaming in the sober community goes, I mean, fuck dude i i just don't understand it because we're already ostracized you know we're already our own little group that the quote unquote the rest of the world you know has a certain opinion on a certain view a stigma and 
this idea that there is shame going on within the community by other sober people is just, it's mind blowing to me. Like it's, it's when you hear about like, well, actually, you know, African-Americans are racist against other African-Americans. You're like, wait, what? Like, why? (laughs) Um, And it, it's, oh, I mean, we'll get, we obviously just had to deal with some of this issue, but to me, it's, it's so much ego that I just can't stand. It's, it seems to me, and it's specifically the recovery community on social media is somehow we have somehow turned it into like this competitive thing and it's become like this. And I, and that is like when it becomes like the shaming and it's, yeah. I notice when people get a bit of attention and people are really affirming this, per, you know, a different person that you'll then see all these other people like making fun of them. And it's making fun of the quote unquote sober influencer that it's like, I, you know, I've told you this story that I was on a, I went to go celebrate someone's sober birthday and they, I get on the zoom call with actual really well-known people in the sober community, um, really in the, on this, the Instagram sober community. And this person, we were talking about how we met and this person goes, yeah, yeah. I didn't know what to think of you because you were still trying to be that sober influence. You were trying to do that sober influencer thing. And I was like, what? what? what are you talking about? And she just went off about how, you know, you were, you were trying to be super important. You're trying to show, like, I can't remember exactly the words, but it like, I was so taken aback and so humiliated and confused because all of us on that Zoom call are people that were open about our sobriety. And what it spoke to me was this person was so insecure with her, with something oh, okay. happening in her world that, I mean, I stopped talking about for like weeks on my Instagram, I was being very weird about it because it made me insecure. Because that am I being a certain way? That's not like am I doing something wrong? And I just still can't. And then I made a post about it, and people were shook. People outside of the sober community were like, "Wait, that's a thing? You guys actually shame each other? Like this is?" She's like, "I don't understand it." And it's like it's real. It's very real there. I yeah. I mean, to be honest, it it didn't surprise me when you told me because I've had issues with certain people in the community and I'm not afraid. I mean, I've put people on blast and I'll do it because guess what? It's my fucking podcast and it's my fucking <laughs> community. So I'll do it. And, but th- the thing is, these are people who literally been part of our community before and left. So these are not like, Oh, I'm better than you kind of a people. Like I'm noticing that this is a trend and I, I hate to say it, but a lot of them are 12 steppers. And there's a pattern of people who do 12 step and them being like half in the online community and half not, because how can you say they're like exactly what happened to you? Like, how can you sit there and say, oh, you're trying to be a sober influencer. You're trying to glamorize X, Y, Z, whatever. It's like, if you have a, a, any sort of Instagram account that's public and you're talking about sobriety, you are influencing. The literal definition of an influencer is trying to get people to like what you're doing or understand what you're doing or get interested in what you're doing. And so if you're a mental health advocate, if you are a sobriety advocate, I don't care if you have 100 followers or 20,000 followers, you are an influencer. Hate to break it to you. Um, (laughs) And so it's just, I get it. The idea of like the word influencer is kind of cringy sometimes um, because it does sometimes bring that negative connotation of um, glamorization or payment or whatever. Superficial. Yeah. my, My thought process behind it is like, do any way that we can mainstream sobriety, alcohol-free living, make it more normal, make, make un- have more people understand it, the better. And this whole idea of, well, you know, you're glamorizing it because people have said that too, right? About a thousand hours dry, your program is too casual, right. um, you know, all this stuff. And I just want to sit back and be like, look, 
there's a program already out there for people who were like me, actual addicts, actual, you know, people in substance abuse. Um, and they, we have a fucking space. What about everybody else? What about everybody else that doesn't identify as an alcoholic or an addict? What about people who have gray area drinking problems or maladaptive issues with alcohol? And there's no space for that. And so what are they supposed to do? Just keep wandering around in discomfort and maladaptive behaviors? Like, no. So I don't care if it's too casual. That's the point is to include everybody and have a space where people who are in recovery can relate and understand and hopefully share their knowledge and inspiration and also a place that feels welcoming enough to somebody who may not have, you know, uh, experiences like you and I have where our, our substance abuse is quite, you know, loud. Um, they, they can come in and say, you know what, I do relate to some of this. And I, I, I can see myself, you know, living an alcohol-free life and having the benefits and stuff. And I love seeing like, you know, people like um, Maria M. Snazzy and, uh, or Miss Snazzy, I always fucking say her by wrong, where it's like, you make sobriety look cute and fun. Like, and it is. And that's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. And to me, it's very traditional thinking to think, this is only a uh, living and deaf situation. Like you cannot make this, um, you know, taking this lightly, you're, you know, it's all recovery, traditional bullshit to me. That is just so much ego, like, and it just makes me mad. Like, right. There's something that is being projected onto other people. And so, okay. So the thing about (laughs) my view on that is, I, I, again, understand where they're coming from because they feel like the thing that they struggled with that they felt like they had no control over is now being glamorized as this really cool club to be part of. And I understand that. But the reality is that not everyone is you. Not everyone is me. And so, for example, I did not go to AA. I did not attend AA um, within my first year. And I got into a year and the, the pandemic hit and a friend of mine was like, you should come to an AA meeting if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling a certain way. And so I went to like three of them. And I'm going to be very honest and say that I did not enjoy them. And, yeah. and I say this not to put down AA. I'm not saying that because um, I previously was interviewed on another podcast and I mentioned that I hated AA and there was a conflict with that. So, <laughs> so let me just say here that... Um, <laughs> that I don't, that I'm not shaming anyone that for a, but my, the thing is like, I went and I didn't get it. I did not enjoy it because from my personal experience was the whole statement of like, I am powerless to this thing. And there already is like, I'm not. And that's not part of my journey. And honestly, I'm, that would be giving alcohol too much credit in my life because mine was all set within trauma. And honestly, if you made, if coffee was alcohol, I would still be a, that'd still be a problem. Or if it was (laughs) the way I eat, the way I eat chips and cookies in my, in my house, they're gone within a day, but it's like, those are going to kill me. So it's like, I, I just have, to be honest with you, I'm a person of habit and routine and it worked really well for me. And so I, I don't ever want to downplay that for me personally, in my journey, like I don't want to downplay somebody else's struggle, but for me and the people I know that, you know, probably should stop drinking because even though they don't drink every night, when they do drink, they're kind of a bitch. They're kind of an asshole. They're not fun to be around. And so there is that weird with a thousand hours dry, that area is necessary because they don't, some people don't need to go follow accounts that like tell them that they, you know, to give them the, the, this rock bottom material because a lot of people are not going through that. Yeah. It's just, and for for me, I always, I back it up. AA was the foundation of my sobriety. That was the only thing that was available when I got sober, which was in 2016 or in 2015. Um, You know, there wasn't anything else where I was 
And so I needed something and I went and it worked for me in the beginning, but as an atheist and as somebody, just like you said, I have a growth mindset. And to me saying I am powerless, that is an affirmation (laughs) that I don't want to get behind because I'm not powerless. And it just was creating too much of a fixed mindset for me. Like you're always going to be this, you know, you can't change and you're, you're almost that you're special. You're here. This is, you know, like you said, this, this club and my kind of thing is, yeah, I get it. Like I, I was part of that. I, I was sober in LA. So like I was going to meetings and there are celebrities and all these, you know, like it was this super cool thing to be a part of because you're like, oh yeah, I know so-and-so, you know, and it was a bragging kind of thing. And in a lot of, I think, smaller areas too, where, you know, being an alcoholic or being sober is not super acceptable or normalized. Like how, you know, I'm in Southern California. It's very like normalized here uh, to not drink or to eat vegan or, you know, any of those things. Um, So I get it. Like you want to protect something that has helped you and that has helped a lot of people, but to me, it's just uh, kind of like you said, people don't want to share and it's very immature. And I just think people need to get over it. Like you just need to get <laughs> over it. Like, I'm sorry that your like exclusive club is no longer exclusive. And I get it. Like I was one of those people that felt like, oh, you need to qualify. Like, are you a real right. addict? Or are you real alcoholic? And it's such a closed mindset and it just doesn't, it doesn't help. It hurts people. And that's what, ha- and that's why people leave the program. And that's why people, a lot of people, it doesn't work for them because they, instead of, you know, encouragement when you slip or relapse or whatever you want to call it, there's it's shame-based. You lose your sponsors or you lose your sponsees. You, you know, have to go up and basically do a walk of shame and take a new chip because all of that time is taken away from you which is another reason I decided with the dry club that you can make up your own fucking sobriety date, because guess what? Who right. cares? Like if you're worried about somebody else's sobriety date, go back to the old AA saying like, worry about your side of the street, keep your side of the street clean, mind your fucking business. And it just, it pissed a lot of people off too. When I said that, and I, I just don't care. Like I'm, I'm so much more in it for, Every nasty message I get, I get another message going, oh, my God, I thought the same thing. I'm so happy somebody else said it. And to me, that just fuels what we're doing because, I mean, how fucking cool. Like, we had an article about A Thousand Hours Dry in Strong Magazine. There's going to be an article published from NBC, like, about what we're doing, which is going to then enable other people to know that we're, we're available to help, you know, by word of mouth. And that's, to me is so cool. And there's nothing negative about that. And, and who just, who fucking cares? Like, it's, it's the same group of fucking people online, that it's just, you know, for me, AA is all about if you actually read the big book, and if you the actual program itself that is just really non-existent now people have really warped it into something else but if you actually did the work and did the 12 steps and um you know read the literature you would know like that it's it's not so black and white it really is not and um the whole program is about removal of the ego removal of the self and so if you're worried about what other people are doing in their sobriety, you are, you have obviously not removed your ego or yourself. I mean, like, fuck, I had a meme put about me on a, on a sobriety page. And instead of being upset about it, I was like, Oh, cool. Like I'm like kind of famous. Um, <laughs> and then I just DM the person and I was like, you know, you just might want to like check it out. Like, I know you're probably in early recovery, you know, as somebody with almost five years, I'm letting you know, like, you might want to talk to your sponsor about the fact that you make fun of people online for fun. 
you How know, it just, I, of they they made another passive aggressive meme about it afterwards. Um, <laughs> like it was just, it was funny, but to me, it was like, once again, I practice, practice like the radical empathy and think I was totally at that person my first year of sobriety. And especially when I was doing 12 steps where everything I was on defense about everything. And I felt so, it felt so good to be part of something finally there where people got me. And so I totally understand the defensiveness of the program, but kind of what Beth and I touched on in our podcast and what Kevin and I were going to have like a clubhouse chat about is that the reason I, that, you know, what sets dry club apart from other programs is that we, we push a growth mindset. Like we want you to, to do whatever works for you. We want you to use multiple resources. We want you to continue to always grow and never feel like, you know, everything. And a lot of other programs, I, I don't think teach that they think there's a hierarchy, there's, you know, I, like, I would never have one person be the sponsor of another person, because I'm sorry, but none of us are fucking like psychiatrists or therapists, you know, I will, there's not, some of us are, but, um, you know, for the most part, there's just, there's no such thing as being like a professional recovery person like I guess there's sobriety coaching but like that's once again I think that's kind of silly um but that's just a personal opinion um (laughs) I just I just you know all we can do is give out information and help educate and give our perspectives and suggestions like everything is a suggestion that's like one thing Adam said and I love that and it's true like you can take it or leave it if it works for you, great. If it doesn't work for you, there's other things out there, but we're going to point you in that direction. We're not going to tell you, oh, well, you're wrong. We're just going to say, oh, okay, well, like, based on what you're telling us, this program might work better or try doing this. And I think that's what's really important and what makes me happy to be part of what we've created, um, you know, that, like, we're the like the buddhism of recovery like you can be buddhist and you can be other things like and i just always thought that was so cool right um just yeah at the end of the day i just say like grow up who cares and like if you're worried about what other people are doing like check yourself like this is the shadow self coming at you like i i have to i have to check myself all the time when i'm around people who are drinking even my boyfriend because he drinks like when i'm being judgmental judy or when i'm being a bitch, you know, and, and projecting, I have to like check myself and be like, okay, is this my shadow self projecting because I'm seeing parts of this person that I don't like because they remind me of the parts of me that I don't like, or the parts of me that I haven't gotten to, you know, like that I would like to be like, but I'm not there yet. Am I, is it envy? Is it, is it, you know, it's always something else. It's never, you know, what I think it is, never the, the surface reason. So, Oh, for sure. If you don't, if you don't know what the shadow self is, look it up <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be, you'll feel a little attacked, but it's, it's great. It's great to have in the back of your mind at all times. For sure. Well, Vince, it has been <laughs> an amazing conversation. Obviously yes. I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll hear about it. Um <laughs> <laughs> But honestly, I don't care. Um, But I mean, so the way that I like to end episodes is by asking something that seems simple, but is never simple, which is if you could give one piece of advice to somebody who is on the fence in, you know, their sober curiosity or one piece of advice that you wish you could have given to yourself in the beginning of this journey what would that be? Um, wow. I, I think of so many statements that come to my mind. Um, but probably the biggest one is the biggest advice that I, I would go back and give to myself and to anyone that is exploring it is um, you have to do it yourself, but you can't do it alone. And mm-hmm. that, um, so, on a Hallmark card, something you'd probably yes. share to your Insta story and then not give a thought about after. Um, but truly, I the decision is yours. The action is yours. It is all up to you. Um, 
but there is no, and just because of that, that does not mean it is solely yours to carry alone. And I wish that looking back at my journey that I wish I would have asked for more of the support when I really was struggling to, um, there's so many times where even to even now that I'll, I'll go through something and struggle it. And I think, well, it's, you know, it's my problem. I need to fix it. I need to handle it. And you actually don't have to do that. You don't have, you can go, I think therapy is great. Support meetings are great. Um, for sober friends are so great. I mean, there's so many of us that are here that are waiting to listen that are not judgmental. And, so I hope, I hope people know that in that resources, there are so many free resources to people to find community and that support that they need. Correct. And there's nothing wrong with asking for help. I always just say to people, you know, it, are you a personal trainer? No. Okay. So like, you're not going to know everything at the gym or you're not a nutritionist. Okay. You're not going to know everything about what you're putting in your body. Like if I could afford to pay for all of those things, I would totally do it because I know that I know nothing like, and so asking for help, especially when it comes to recovery and mental health, like there's a reason that people spend like freaking 12 years in school to become psychiatrists because that that's how long it takes to learn the ins and outs. And that's just, you know, scraping the surface. So asking for help when it comes to your mental health and your sobriety, that's completely normal. It, it's such an individualist cultural thing that we have to deal with. But like, this is a community problem and we're fixing it as a community and supporting each other as a community. So definitely reach out. Our DMs are always open. Yes. Um, 100%. Um, and Vince, why don't you tell people where they can reach out to you or um, where they can uh, find your blog? Absolutely. So again, I am on Instagram at The Vulnerable Disco. My name is Vince Miller. And I actually just converted blog, which is a full website, um, temporarily over to substack.thevulnerabledisco.com. So you can come get on my spicy newsletters where I talk about mm-hmm. everything. And um, yeah, it's a fun time. <laughs> I love that. Well, we'll make sure to put all the details in the episode description. Thank you so much for being on today, Vince. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Dry Life Podcast, a 1,000 Hours Dry Podcast. You can actually now find us on Instagram at the Dry Life Podcast or on our main platform at 1,000 Hours Dry. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you took something from today. Have a great day.